Praise indeed. Remain standing out of love and affection for God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. And turn with me to the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament. John chapter 18. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses today. We start a new Lenten series, this being the first Sunday of Lent. We've entitled that series, From Arrest to Resurrection. We'll be looking at John's account, John's Gospel account, of the last days of Jesus' earthly life before he bore our sins in his body, but then was resurrected to new life that we'll celebrate in a few weeks on Easter Sunday. So we begin today the, bit of the, the first part of John's uh, 18th chapter. There is a difference between sovereignty and providence. Those two words are fancy words that we throw around a lot. We just finished a series in the, the book of Ruth where we went line by line through the whole book. and We talked often about the providence of God. Today we're going to look at a passage that really gives us a beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God. Let me define the two differences for you. Sovereignty really is God's plan. His eternal, perfect plan. From before the foundation of the world, God decreed that He would do a work. And He did that work in creation and now in providence. So sovereignty is his eternal plan. Providence is his care, his daily care for us, watching over us according to that plan that he has done from the foundation of the world. So providence is his, his, his active work in preserving us, working in us day by day. His sovereignty is a plan that he ordained because he alone is God from the foundation of the world. The passage that we're going to read today starts the Lenten series giving us a picture of Jesus' arrest, a day that we would say is probably a very dark day in history, and yet a day that is perfectly in place with God's sovereign plan. From the foundation, before the foundation of the world, God decreed that he would send his son to die for people like you and me. So let's give our full attention then to the reading of God's holy and fallible word with that understanding, this beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. John chapter 18, beginning of verse 1. Hear now the word of God. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met, them, uh, met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have lost not one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink of the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and Jewish officials arrested Jesus. 
Friends, this is the word of the Lord. What do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Our Father, perhaps many of us have read this passage numerous amounts of times, but we would pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to behold wonderful, beautiful things from this portion of your holy law, that we might see the full power that is yours, and that we might fall right before you, prostrate prostrate before you, uh, to worship you, submission and humility and in complete obedience. So do this, please, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. On July 28, 1962, Mariner 1 space probe Uh, was launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida on its way to Venus, where it was supposed to surround the planet and take pictures of this cloud shroud that was around the entire planet. And the plan was supposed to be this. Thirteen minutes after liftoff, a booster engine would give acceleration up to 25,280 miles per hour. 44 minutes after liftoff, 9,800 solar cells were to unfold. 80 days after liftoff, a computer on board was to calculate the final course for corrections. 100 days after liftoff, the craft would circle Venus and take pictures of this mysterious cloud. In reality, four minutes after takeoff, Mariner 1 plunged into the Atlantic plunged into the Atlantic and later was determined the code that was entered into the computer was absent of one small minus sign. And the one small minus sign cost millions of dollars. Who is in control of your life? Who is in control of your life? You know, we all sit here and we want to say Jesus is. Jesus is, God is, because he is sovereign over all. He had a plan from the foundation of the world. He's the only one that can orchestrate his plan and do his plan. But the reality also is, friends, if we were honest with ourselves and with one another, we would have to confess and admit that many times we run our life, we live our life as if we are in control. And you know what? Sometimes we actually get away with it, don't we? Sometimes we actually do things in life and things happen. Results happen and those results are favorable to what it is that we desire. And so then we get a little bit more bold in our power and our control of our own life in coming up with the plan that we think that we should live. But friends, minus one little bitty minus sign omit one little bitty minus sign and you are just one little glitch away from complete disaster just like Mariner 1. And yet we continue to live as if we are in control of all things when we have a scripture and a savior who tells us that he alone is, that he alone is sovereign over all and then providentially caring for us today. The beginning of the 18th chapter of John's Gospel gives us a picture of this. It is the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly life. 
And we read these accounts, and I think back on that particular day, those disciples that were with Jesus in this particular olive grove in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is now being arrested. Everything that he had been telling us for the last three years we've been listening to, we thought we challenged from time to time, but he would show us his majesty and his glory. Our minds would be blown away as we saw exactly who he was, and now suddenly he is being arrested and carried away. They would have to be thinking, this, this isn't the way it needs to happen. Would we be any different, friends, if we were there? Would we be any different? We would be exactly like them. We would be fond of all of the things that we had heard from him over the last three years and now suddenly think we need to stop this part. We need to stop this arrest because this isn't a good thing. This is a bad thing. But the reality is, this is exactly what God had ordained from the foundation of the world. That God's sovereign plan before the foundation of the world would be that he would send his only begotten son to do a work for us that we cannot do for ourselves. That he would die on the cross for our sin to satisfy divine justice because he alone was fully God and fully man. There would be no other sacrifice that would do all other sacrifices. All of those sacrifices in the Old Testament that only point to Jesus to come omitted a minor sign. They would not work for all eternity. Only Jesus' sacrifice on the cross would work. And this is exactly what the Bible tells us. See, we would think in our minds, we, gotta, we have to stop this arrest and stop this plan. But listen to, listen to what the Bible says, that this was God's sovereign decree. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter is preaching to the Sanhedrin, and he says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge, before the foundation of the world, he decreed that Jesus would be handed over. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Herod and Pilate are meeting together to conspire against Jesus. And then the passage reads, They did what your power and will had decided beforehand that they would do. That these two individuals who would bring about an end to Jesus' earthly life were only doing the power that God had given them to do by His power and will. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, Through the church the manifold wisdom of God is made known to its rulers and authorities according to the eternal purposes of God, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal purposes of God accomplished in Jesus. And then Psalm 22, that passage that you should have read for Scripture of meditation this morning. That passage, that messianic psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus would later utter on the cross, written by the psalmist hundreds of years before it happened. God's sovereign decree, friends, listen, this is good news for people like you and me. This is great news for people like you and me. God's plan before the foundation of the world was to send his son to die for people like you and me because that would be the only way that we would enjoy communion with him. The passage actually gives us the when and the where. By way of context, since we're not starting at the beginning of the book, let me just put this into, pra or into perspective for you. Look at the first word in chapter 18. When... When he had finished praying, 
And then Jesus left. So what, what is the when? When is the when? We find it actually, if we go back, back in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, we find Jesus and the apostles in the upper room. Jesus is washing their feet, meekness and majesty, like we just sang. He's washing their feet and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Well, it's not me. Surely it's not me. Surely it's not me. And he leans over to Judas and he says, yeah, it's going to be you. And Judas stands up knowing that he's been caught and he takes off John chapter 13. Then we have John chapter 14, 15, and 16, what's known as the upper room discourse. And it's Jesus' instruction revealing to the apostles that he had to come to Jerusalem for the Passover to be handed over to the enemy and to die, to suffer and die. In John chapter 17, we have his high priestly prayer. I and the Father are one. I am in you. You are in me. And the same love that you have for me, you now have for them. The love that you've given to me, you've given to them because we are one, just as you and I are one. I know my sheep. My sheep know my voice. I lay down my life for my sheep, he says in John chapter 17. And then John 18, our passage, when? When he had finished praying. So all of these upper room discourse events had already taken place. Jesus had revealed to them who he was, and he left. He had gathered there for the Passover celebration. That's why he came into Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem now for the Passover celebration. The city would have been full, full of individuals. And now not only do we have the when, but we have the where. Look what takes place in verse 1. When he had finished praying... Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley and on the other side there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. They left Jerusalem now and there is a small ravine called the Kidron Valley. They went down in the Kidron Valley and just on the other side is the Garden of Gethsemane which is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. I've stood right there to look at the East Gate. This Kidron Valley very shallow, would have been, listen friends, would have been the collection point for the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sacrificial animals that had been slaughtered in the temple and all of the blood run down out of the temple right there on the border of the Kidron Valley. They are crossing the Kidron Valley and it would be filled with sacrificial blood, but blood omitting a minus sign because that blood would not do only the perfect sacrifice, only the perfect blood would do. And that would be Jesus' blood. And so he crosses the Kidron Valley. He takes them into the Garden of Gethsemane, a place, as we go to find out, they had gathered many, many times before where they sat at his feet and they listened to the words of eternal life. Now get this. It is in this treasured place that Judas Iscariot would bring a detachment of lost individuals, unbelievers, to betray the Savior of the world. He would bring this detachment right into the place where they had all sat at his feet and worshipped him and listened to the beautiful gospel that he would be teaching them. The Greek word detachment, by the way, gives us an understanding of about two or three hundred individuals. So get this out of your mind of, 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 
uh, Hollywood, in the movie where there's about, you know, six to 12 soldiers coming uh, to capture Jesus. Oh, no, no. They wanted him, and they wanted him bad, badly. They brought 200 to 300 individuals. And look who it is that's leading the way. Verse 3. So Judas came to the grove, guiding this detachment. Judas Iscariot would bring them to this very treasured place because he knew that's where Jesus would be. That's where Jesus had been before. That's where he had sat at Jesus' feet. And he would defile this place by bringing two to three hundred lost individuals, unbelievers, to do a work that God had ordained from the foundation of the world. But in verse 5, in the parenthetical thought, after Jesus answers their question, not only did Judas guide them to this place, but look what it says there. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. Not only did he guide them, but he was standing. Friends, here's what John is telling us. Judas Iscariot never was a believer. He wasn't a believer that was tempted and therefore gave in to temptation and became a betrayer. He was a hypocrite who knew nothing about the gospel of grace, didn't want to know anything, but lived a life trying to expect or trying to show everyone else that he did. He was a phony. He was a hypocrite. He was standing in their presence. Here's the ironic thing too, John's gospel. John's gospel by the way, is not one of the synoptic gospels. Synoptic meaning the word same. Matthew, Mark and Luke are the same. Uh, they have different perspective from the author, but John's gospel is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's gospel has no parables. John's gospel has all this imagery and irony, lightness, light and dark. John's gospel has the eight I am sayings, and none of the other gospels have that. But look at the irony here. They came, in verse 3, carrying torches and lanterns in search of the one who is the light of the world. And they came with weapons in search of the one who was the Prince of Peace. And it is into this place this detachment is brought by one who is one of them, standing there with them. And so friends, I want to ask you a very important question. Listen carefully. Are you here today and you are sitting, sitting in this seat week in, week out, and you are hearing the good news of the gospel of grace, and you have yet to give your life to Christ, bow the knee to Christ, believe that he is the sovereign Lord of all. You are no better than Judas, loved one, if that's you, who put himself in the presence of perfection and did not believe it. But look at this perfection. There's still hope for us. In this perfection now, Jesus gives us this beautiful picture of his majesty and his glory. We read that in this same account here. Jesus, Jesus who, or Judas, who was to betray in verse 2, knew the place. So he took them there. Judas was guiding the detachments of soldiers. And then look what verse 4 says. We have this beginning of a beautiful picture of the sovereign power of Christ himself. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, went out and asked them a question. And he repeated that question twice. Now back in chapter 13, Jesus had already leaned over to Judas and said, I know what you're going to do. The one who is dipping 
his hand into the oil with me is the one who will betray me. I know it's you, Judas. And Judas gets up and leaves, and the rest of the disciples say, well, he's the keeper of the purse, so maybe he had, maybe there was a mercy ministry need or something that came up, and he, he took off. I don't know why he left, but Jesus had already told, or John had already told us back in chapter 13, Jesus, Jesus knew that Judas was going to be the betrayer. So it's not surprising in verse 4 of our text that we would read Jesus knowing all that was going to happen. He knows all that was going to happen because he is fully God and fully man. And look what else it tells us there. He knows all that was going to happen. And so he went out to them. Back in John chapter 6, remember they tried to ambush him and force him to be their king. And the scripture says in John 6 that he slipped away from them undetected. But here now he went out and he goes to them. He comes to them as the one who knows Every single thing that is about to transpire, everything that is about to happen. Who is it that you're looking for? Who is it that you want, he asks in the end of verse 4. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And his response, I am he. Literally translated, it's ego a me. Two Greek words, ego a me. Translated, I am. There is no he in Greek. Have you heard that before? I am. What about Exodus chapter 3? Where Moses appears to the burning bush. The bush is burning but not being consumed. And the voice of God Almighty, Yahweh, says, Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you tell him to let my people go. Bring them out of darkness into light. Out of bondage and into freedom. And what does Moses say? Well, I don't talk good. <laughs> I don't know what to say. What should I say? Who should I say tell, uh, sent me? And the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, known as the Septuagint, says, you tell them, ego a me. I am sent you. We read it in John's Gospel as well in the eight I am sayings. And in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, Jesus has already said, before Abraham was, past tense, ego a me, I am. Here is what Jesus is saying. Now get this, friends. Here are these detachment of two or three hundred unbelievers, lost individuals. They're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am. They fall down to the ground at the end of verse 6. They drew back and they fell down to the ground. Some commentators say they did this out of fear because they brought their torches and their lanterns. It was dark. He went out to meet them, so it was almost like they're looking, where is he? And he goes, boo, <laughs> I am, I'm here. Who are you looking for? And they go, oh, and they fall down. I think that's hogwash. I think it's this, friends. I think they are now exposed to the very one who reveals their unbelief. They are in the presence of the great I am, Jesus the Christ, God himself in the flesh, and they cannot stand in that presence. Every knee shall bow. They fall prostrate before him. They fall back because now they have been exposed for who they are. And perhaps even some of these soldiers are of the ones at the, the foot of the cross on the, day, uh, on the day of the crucifixion that say, surely he was the Son of God. Perhaps this is even the thing that brings them in to belief. Now let me make this pointed application. If you're here today 
And you are counted among Judas. You're counted among unbelief. Would you consider this? That the passage says, they drew back and they fell to the ground. They could fall all the way to hell. This individual could have cast them into the deepest, darkest parts of hell for their unbelief. And he only allowed them to fall to the ground. Why? Because he is gracious. There is still time for them to come to saving faith and to receive the free gift of life eternal, abundant and free. He could have cast them to hell, but he cast them simply to the ground to say, look at who is standing right before you. And so I would plead with you, if this is des describing of you, there is still time today for you to bow the knee, to fall right down on the ground before this Savior, who is I am. But I would bet that probably is not but only a few of us here. I would guess that the majority of us here love the words of 460, hymn 460. You know what that one is? Amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I would think the majority of us here are counted among those who are not lost instead of those who are lost. And we would say, my God is good. The I am, the great I am is good. He, he didn't cast me into hell, but he has given me this gift of life, abundant and free. That's true. But I've got even better news for you today. There is more to the gospel. There is more to the glorious gospel of grace than he saved you from your sins. And that's what this passage goes on. He saved you from your sins. Yes, absolutely. And that's glorious in and of itself. But he even gives us a picture that is more glorious. Look at what he says in verse 8. When he asks the second time, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I told you, ego me." I told you I am. And then look what he says. If you're looking for me, then you let these other individuals, you let these men go. Here is the protection and the provision that accompanies this gospel of salvation. Not only does he save us from our sin, but now he protects us and he provides for us in our daily living. There is absolutely no reason at all that this two or three hundred men, this detachment, should allow these other apostles to go free. They wanted to wipe this movement completely out, and yet they get away. Why? Because, look what it says, verse 9, to fulfill John chapter 6, I have not lost one of the ones given to me. He saved you from your sins. That's glorious enough. But in addition to that, friends, he is protecting you and providing for you. He is holding you in the, the palm of Christ, in the hand of God, doubly joined forever and ever. Not, no one's going to snatch you from there. That's the beauty of the gospel. He saved you and now he keeps you. Not one of his elect from the foundation of the world will perish because of the protection and because of the, the power of, of, of God himself given to us in Christ Jesus. This is the Savior, ego me, the one before whom we fall 
prostrating ourselves. So what does this mean for believers then, like you and me, those that are not lost, but believers? There's even, there's even a greater aspect of this gospel. He has saved us from our sin. He provides and he protects for us. But friends, this passage right here, verse, verse 9 8 and 9, give us two doctrines that we cling to that are good news for us. Those two doctrines are these, limited atonement and substitutionary atonement. Let me explain them. Look at the passage, limited atonement. I have not lost one of those that you gave me. In the high priestly prayer, he says, I know my sheep, my sheep know my voice. I laid down my life for my sheep. It is limited to those that, for whom Christ came to die. The, the salvation that God gives to us, Jesus did not die for all mankind everywhere. Jesus died only for the elect. Limited atonement or particular redemption as we sometimes call it. But this is a beautiful doctrine. We say that's not fair. No, it's not fair. What's not fair is that you got in. <laughs> not that the unelect were not able to get in, but limited atonement that Jesus said, I have come and I will not lose one of the ones that the Father gives me, has given to me, gave to me, past tense. Limited atonement. It's a beautiful doctrine. But substitutionary atonement as well. I have not lost one of the ones that you, Father, have given to me. Why? Because, verse 11, he drank the cup that the Father gave to him. They could not do it on their own. You cannot do it on your own. You might think that you are in control of your life, but you are one omission of, an, of a minus sign away from utter disaster and destruction. It would take a perfect sacrifice, and you are not perfect. I am not perfect. And so Jesus said, I will secure the destiny, the salvation of all of those you, Father, have given to me by drinking of this cup that was ordained from the foundation of the world that I would drink of, substituting, taking their place. I would be that sacrificial lamb. I would shed my blood for them as their substitute that they might have life eternal, abundant and free. Do you see the glorious gospel that's before you, friends? He saved you. Yes, he saved you from your sin. But he is providing for you. He is protecting you. You are counted among the elect and no one will snatch you from the hand. He died for you. How glorious is that? Now, just when you thought, okay, that's got to be the end of the glory. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no. Look, there's even more. Oh, good old Peter, verse 10. Let's always blame it on Peter, right? He was born with a silver foot in his mouth, just like George Bush. Or that's what Ann Richards said one day. Look at it, verse 10. Then Simon Peter drew a sword. The Greek word here, sword, means that which is, which is concealed. It's not this big, long sword that he's whipping around. He has a small little knife is what he has, a concealed knife. And he reaches over and he knocks off the ear. Now get this now. Put this into perspective, all right? Here's Peter. Here's Peter with a little old bitty, you think that's a knife, this is a knife. He pulls out his little knife and he cuts off the ear. He's ready to take on two or three hundred soldiers. 
with a little bitty knife. And yet, what is he going to do next week when Elder Hall is preaching for us? By the temptation of one young woman, he'll say, I never knew the man. That is great news. Because you and I are just like Peter. We're just exactly like Peter. We think we can take on the world and yet we give in to the smallest temptation and here is the good news of the gospel. He forgives you of your sin. You know how John's gospel account ends in John 21? The reinstatement of Peter. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. The reinstatement of Peter. Here's the good news of this glorious gospel. He saved you. He's providing for you. He protects you. He keeps you safe. And he forgives you again and again and again. Because you're going to leave this place and you're going to think, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try hard. Sola bootstraps. I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and really try hard this time. Mm -mm, you're not going to do it. Now, that's not... That's not license to go send your fill. You are going to fail. And yet there is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Peter thought he could do it. He thought he was standing for the Savior, and he was actually standing against the Savior. Because the Savior had been determined before the foundation of the world that he would come, and he would be arrested at the beginning of the end of his life to reveal to us that he would die for our sins and set us free. My father and I used to take his little Cessna 182 and fly to different places in the United States for a vacation. And one year we flew up to the Grand Canyon. I had never seen the Grand Canyon, but we landed in this small town about 20, mi 20 miles south. And we rented a car. And it was, I got out of the plane and it was, it's, it was like being in Dallas. It was as flat as a pancake. And I'm thinking, the pictures that I've seen of the Grand Canyon, <laughs> there's no way that, we're not anywhere close. Oh yeah, we're only about 20 miles away. Thinking, no way. We get in the car, we drive all the way to the lip of the Grand Canyon, we pull off into the little parking lot and it's flat as a pancake. I'm thinking, we're, we're in the wrong spot. This GPS, like the lady of the GPS, she's, she's a liar. She tells you to go someplace and it's not always true. Until I walked out down this little walkway and then all of a sudden, I just, it took my breath away. I thought, I have never seen anything as beautiful and majestic as that. I stood there for oh, about an hour just looking and just soaking it in and think, this is, the, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. It just, my knees trembling almost. Then we went back to the plane. We got in it. We took off and we flew 9,000 feet over the top of it. And I went, <gasps> that thing is a lot bigger than you've ever imagined. And at 9,000 feet over the top of it, the majesty of the Grand Canyon just causes you to fall right, before, right down and say, wow. I wonder, loved ones, is that your response to Ego Amy? As you fall down right before him and go, What a Savior. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and grace to us that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you that your plan before the foundation of the world was to send your only begotten Son 
to do for us what we would never be able to do for ourselves. That is the good news of the gospel. But then not only that, but now preserve us and protect us and forgive us ongoing forgiveness that's ours. As we confess our sin, you promise to cast it as far as the east is from the west. What a wonderful gospel wrapped up in a wonderful Savior. So, Father, we fall down right before you today to declare that you are our God and we are your people. Remind us of that when we try to control our own life, that you are in control of everything, whatsoever comes to pass, by your sovereign, providential decree. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are seated on the inside row, would you grab that black pad under the seat in front of you, please? And fill out all the information requested there and then pass that pad down to everyone seated on your row so that we have a record of your attendance with us this morning. Our ushers are coming to collect our morning offering. It's our opportunity to give to the work of this kingdom, this eternal kingdom that knows no end. Let's give sacrificially. And then lastly, this is going to be a relatively new hymn for most of us, but let's sing it together. It's got six stanzas by number five and six. You'll have it down, I promise. Hymn number 34, the God of Abraham praise. Remain seated, please. Let's sing together. <laughs> 